To listen to Triple Click, you have to drink this special potion. I don't know how it works. Nobody does. It's magic. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week, we all played Return to Monkey Island, a legacy sequel, or legacy sequel, to the long-dormant Monkey Island series, with the original game's writers back at it, writing jokes again. I'm Maddie Myers. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Kirk Hamilton, and hello! Hello! Hello to my, my two favorite gamers, yes. my favorite podcast co-hosts. Really, two of my favorite people. Lowercase g gamers. Yeah, lowercase g. Always with the lowercase g. All the other letters uppercase. And lowercase p people. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because people has also got some weird connotations around it that we are trying yeah, to get away knows. from. Got to be careful. We're trying to, yeah, you can't can't call call human get... beings people these days. Mm, that's oh my true. God. Lowercase you never p. know. <laughs> we really like lowercase letters. Yeah, triple click, don't yeah we? it's all lowercase. Yeah, just like Maddie's Twitter feed, it's all lowercase. <laughs> yeah, I try to get rid of the capital letters because I just want people to feel casual and relaxed. That's true. You want us mm-hmm. to feel like we're chatting on Instant Messenger yeah. in the 90s. Yeah, and I, I want them vibes. to feel like we're their friends in real life and sure. there's no separation between us. And if you just can't get enough of having no separation between us, have you considered paying us? <laughs> no separation between your wallet and us. <laughs> we are your real friends who you have the option to pay. I mean, you don't have to do that. We'll just give no. you the show for free. We we can and we do. We will. But, We're cool like that. But <laughs> we also have this other additional option. Like if you go to MaximumFun.org slash join, you can become... A Max Fun member, and you can get bonus episodes. I mean, how could you not? Honestly, the bonus episode this month, really good. Getting rave reviews all around. We talked about formative childhood games. We each picked five. I will not reveal any of the picks, but the Discord is a light. The Triple Click Discord is a light with discussions of the games, fascinated by it, loving it. They are, it's true. And Good stuff. It, it was a was fun, fun topic. That's it a was, fun it was thing a fun to conversation. Fun. We might have to like do a part two of that sometime. Yeah, and it, it's always fun getting this. We might because I yes. I had a lot of honorable mentions that I didn't get to, uh, and it's been fun to see people in Discord sharing their own examples. And uh, if you want to know what our examples were and what everybody's talking about, there's only one way to find out, and that is maximumfun.org/join. Becoming a member, getting all the bonus apps. There's a whole bunch of other ones. But uh, yeah, that's I, I just noticed that in the notes it says that Jason has something to say up top, and now I'm completely distracted and overwhelmed. Jason, please <laughs> yeah, don't have another really surprise. Important. Please, I can't. <laughs> Every now and then, I wake up in a cold sweat at two in the morning, thinking to myself, "How am I going to surprise Jason and Kirk?" Just panicking. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this, man. You can't just write Jason thing in the notes and like have that be acceptable it's true. anymore. It's true. We're all kind of traumatized <laughs> at this point. Okay, first of all, this is not a surprise. Don't worry. No, this is not. I do not have another baby to, to pop up here. Um, okay, good. Maddie, if it helps, you have a lot of time because you basically have until this podcast comes to an end and I don't think right. that's going to be anytime soon. So you have Great plenty point. of time. Um, my thing is actually I have to I have to <laughs> I have to correct the record about something that happened last week, which I've been oh, getting right. a lot of messages about, which is that Maddie, you said champing at the bit and I was I like chopping at the bit. And of course, I've gotten a bunch of messages <laughs> saying like. Uh, Jason, Maddie was right. Like, why'd you correct you? Like, you're such Irony a dick. Is some, dead. some of them were, oh, some of them were nasty messages. Dead. Yeah, okay, some people so, are mad at you. And they're like, how dare you? I just want to explain. <laughs> first of all, I mean, I think it's actually a good standalone joke to be incorrectly correct. Like, correcting yeah, someone I mean, incorrectly. I thought it was funny. About something that, that a lot of people always get, like, confused. But second of all, the reason I said that... Um, and I actually expected Kirk to edit it out. The reason I said that is because I had thought that Kirk, that that was your bugbear, like the chomping, champing thing. Because I remember you talking about that in the past and always like right, jumping on it. it. You've, you've like brought it up in the past. So sure, I expected course. you to be like, no, it's champing. And then I was going to derail the conversation just by like trolling you a little bit about that. But you didn't say anything. Ah, I avoided feeding the troll. Well, th- Success- that's why I, I expected that you to Success. edit it out because it was just <laughs> dead air after well, that. And so- the funniest <laughs> thing is that actually 
so that was kind of crosstalk, and I edited it in. I made it clear uh, because I got the joke. Sure I thought it was very in. funny. Okay. Well, and you can hear Maddie laughing, and I think you guys have even talked about this on the show before. And I, to me, it really clearly came across that you were jokingly correcting with something you knew was incorrect, and then Maddie right. was laughing, Which understanding we all, the joke. I mean, maybe because we're all so annoying that we all know the correct term. So <laughs> yes, like, to us, definitely. it's hilarious to do a yes. purposefully wrong correction, but like to the average listener, they're just like, why did Jason say that? Right. People are just like, oh my God. When it's Jason. How could how dare this man correct a woman with the wrong thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They thought I was yeah, mansplaining. Yeah, also it was very sexist. Yes. So that was How crazy. could you? <laughs> oh, oh, man. Wow. That's okay, pretty well, funny. But, but, uh, but yeah, just wanted to clear the air on the champing chopping thing. Yes. And uh, mm-hmm. I will I will never make an incorrect correction again. Except well, for I also thought well it was aware. a Billions reference because there's a scene where Chuck Rhodes gives a speech and wants to say champing at the bit, but uh-huh. I think yes. it's Ira oh, who yeah. tells him to say yes, chomping right. because yes, he's, thought, he's supposed to be that. like a man of the people in this speech mm-hmm. he's giving. And so that's what I thought you were doing, Jason, was being like, no one's going to understand this champing reference. We got to be podcasters right. of the people here and say chomping, which I mean, Making clearly this is such a multifaceted joke. I'm so glad we left it in and I'm glad we're addressing it here today. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. <laughs> the, right. the most important thing about this correction is that I guarantee you that some people out there have just learned that champing at the bit is what you actually say. And right. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Some people thought it was an honest correction. And those people are also valid. It's true. We validate you. I have a feeling it's like could could, could care less versus couldn't care less. We're like yes. so many people misuse it that it's just become part of the lexicon. It's so become it's kind of standardized. Anyway, let's get on with the show. <laughs> or should we just talk about English idioms for the next hour or so? I don't know. We might because because of the topic could, of the could. show, we could talk about That's English true. idioms quite so, a bit, in fact. This week, Kirk, cue the music. We are talking about the ultimate pirate adventure, Return to Monkey Island. video game, a charming video game that just came out a couple of weeks ago for PC and Switch, I believe, computers and Switch, and uh, it is the return of the Monkey Island series. This is a game designed and written by uh, Ron Gilbert and Dave Grossman, who are the, the lead lead designer written, I should say, although I believe they wrote all of the dialogue and designed most of the puzzles, so safe to say they designed and wrote it. Um, and this is these are two of the original Monkey Island creators. Monkey Island, of course, is a, is a legendary Lucas starts point-and-click adventure series that we talked about in an episode called What's the Deal with Monkey Island that you can go listen to if you're not familiar. So today we're going to talk about Return to Monkey Island. We've all been playing it. Um, it's a really cool game. I finished it. You two have both made uh, significant amounts of progress. So um, why don't we start by talking about our overall impressions of the game. Kirk, do you want to start us off? Sure, I love this game. Surprise, surprise, I love it. Um, It's cracking me up. It's making me feel really nostalgic, but in a wonderful way that doesn't feel manipulative. It just feels like a beautiful thing made by people who made a beautiful thing that I liked 30 years ago, and they love the thing that they made as much as I love it. And it just, it has this kind of joyful, positive energy to it that... um, yeah, I'm, I'm just finding it to be this really just pleasing, funny, wonderful game. So those are my overall impressions. Beautiful. How far are you? Just before, just so we. Oh yeah, um, I'm like midway through Act Two. I'm I'm on LeChuck's ship. I'm sort of, I think I'm currently trying to make the potion that will lead us to Monkey Island. So we're en route to Monkey Island. Mm-hmm. It feels like the story is kind of coming into its own as its own story since after leaving Melee Island, that felt a lot more like a lot of callbacks since Melee Island features so prominently in the first game and that's the one I'm most familiar with. Mm-hmm. Maddie, what about you? Mm-hmm. Overall thoughts? I am in a similar spot for what it's worth although I'm just past the part I think you are at, Kirk, onto the second part of the potion plotline that I won't spoil for you. I think I'm at the very start of that so I, I'm, <laughs> okay. I've learned what I need to do to make the potion which actually involves going somewhere else to make the potion and that's what I'm about to go do. Mm-hmm. And I love this game. I was a little nervous going in because the only Monkey Island game I know is the very first one. And I had recently rewatched the whole Let's Play of it and talked on this very podcast about how hilarious it was. And I was like, ah, but I haven't played all these other ones. Am I going to not get the lore or whatever? Mm-hmm. It so doesn't matter. And I feel like this game is for anyone else in my position because 
the characters are all going back to the exact same place. And also the running joke is the fact that the secret of Monkey Island is never really revealed at any point. And in this game, all the other characters keep clowning on Guybrush for not having ever discovered it, <laughs> even though there's a whole mm -hmm. game called that. And one would imagine he would discover the secret of Monkey Island at some point in it, but he just kind of doesn't. And that's great. But also seeing all the locations again and all the same characters, like the Swordmaster is back and now she's the governor. And I, I feel like I'm sure there's stuff I'm not getting, but I'm laughing so much and enjoying myself so much. I just, I started being like, should I just start writing down all the good jokes? Because I'm going to forget <laughs> what they are when we do the podcast. But no one wants to listen to me reciting jokes. No one, <laughs> no one needs me to be like. And here's another funny one. But for right. real, let me explain so why many, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so many great ones that I'm just like, ah, I love it, and it's I can't recommend it enough. It's so so fun. It feels very much like a game. So I finished it. Um, so I'm ahead of you guys. Um, but uh, yeah, it feels very much like a game that's made by people who are at the top of their game, who are masters of their craft. And you can feel it in so many different ways in the puzzle design and the writing and the humor and the jokes and the, the way it looks and feels. I know there was some controversy over the art style, but like even if you think the screenshots don't look look weird um, in in when you're actually playing it, it's gorgeous. It looks it's beautiful. It's so cool. To play. It's so um, fun. Mm -hmm. It really feels like people who have been making adventure games for 30 years, like coming back to do this. So if Monkey Island, if the first Monkey Island was a game about, and there, there's a whole meta layer to this, a game about like people trying to be game designers, same way Guybrush is trying to be a pirate. This is a game about this grizzled guy who is just coming back for one more shot at it. Who's like, you know, there's some, maybe some, some unresolved plot <laughs> threads here. Maybe some, some kind of, uh, uh, some, some things that I've left undone, a to-do list that I still have to check off, some tasks I still have to accomplish. And and it explores that in some really interesting ways. Um, we won't talk about the ending because you guys haven't actually gotten there or some or any of the stuff that happens in the latter half of the game. But something that Kirk has already noticed that becomes a broader theme is how Guybrush just leaves this trail of destruction in his wake. <laughs> that everything he does just causes havoc for people. And that to me is super fascinating. Another, I'm sure there are all sorts of ways you could read into that as a metaphor for game development <laughs> and the, mm -hmm. the havoc it causes. To um, just to explain, I know we weren't going to just tell jokes, but to explain <laughs> probably the funniest act one sequence to people to give a sense of why, actually why I texted you that. I just texted Jason. I really like how this game is leaning into Guybrush as agent of destruction. <laughs> yeah. There's an early sequence where you have to create a mop so that you can get a job on LeChuck's ship because you're you have to get to Monkey Allen and he has the only ship. So you learn that to make a mop, which is a very cherished item and a very powerful artifact, you have to kind of go on this quest. There's a whole quest. And you have to go up to the woods from the first game that you had to navigate with a map that you would get lost in. Um, and this time you're doing it to find a tree that you're going to cut wood from to make a mop. So you find the map, you go through the woods, and he comes upon this beautiful glade with all these little animals, these Disney animals, like living their lives, little deer and a little squirrel. And there's this <laughs> huge majestic tree lit by, you know, the moonlight coming through the trees. And you have this little knife that's really, really sharp and is very useful. And you click the knife on the tree thinking, you know, oh, he's going to go and cut a branch off and make a mop. And then... <laughs> This cutscene plays where he basically, you know, it's not showing it. It's basically things flying across the camera, but you're not seeing what's happening. And this horror music is playing. <laughs> and then it cuts to him. And the whole field is just destroyed. Like, it's, it's just become this, like, apocalyptic zone of death. And there's just you know, branches everywhere and the animals are all crying and traumatized and he has his <laughs> stick and he's just absolutely destroyed everything. And I was, I think I was on the plane when I was playing this and I was like laughing my ass off. It was so unexpected and so funny and so yeah. perfectly in line with Guybrush's character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny. Yeah. Similar things happened in previous games that Ron Gilbert did. Um, just for some context, by the way, in case you have not listened to What's the Deal with Monkey Island, which you should go do. Um, yes. Ron Gilbert and Dave Grossman, although they were kind of consulting on some other games, really, they just worked on Monkey Island 1 and Monkey Island 2. So the games since then... Curse of Monkey Island, Escape from Monkey Island, and Tales from Monkey Island are mostly other people. So this is them returning to something that that they literally did 30 years ago. Um, right. And yeah, in Monkey Island 2, remember there's that great scene. Actually, a lot of this you see in the museum as reminders of like, oh, all the yeah, destruction the that Guybrush has caused. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, the hipster curator is hilarious. He's hilarious. Um, he's good. 
So funny. Uh, Guybrush, uh, at one point in Monkey Island 2, a puzzle requires you to put up a wanted poster for Kate Capstone, who is like this, this just a, a glass bottom ship like <laughs> right. captain. And you get her arrested for just to advance your own like agenda. Like just this innocent woman is in jail because of you. Cause you just put up her poster like uh, as a wanted poster. It's so <laughs> twisted. When he's, um, it's basically listing crimes and Guybrush is like, actually I did that. Yeah, I, mean, I did that too. I did all those <laughs> <Yep>. things. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, I just yeah, put her and he's like, on. I just changed the name on the poster to frame her. And yeah. the, I mean, this is one of the things about the humor that really works for me is that the curator responds by calling attention to how ludicrous every scenario is in the game. Yeah. Just most of uh-huh. what his jokes are, where he's just like, that would never work. Like, it's absurd to even imagine that. Right. And Guybrush is like, well, yeah, but that is what I did. And the curator is just ignoring him like that's uh, I'm just going to ignore you because what you said doesn't make sense. And that's what most of his lines are. But. I just feel like we're in this post-Deadpool world where, like, breaking the fourth wall is really annoying usually because the character's usually making fun of the structures around them and also kind of making fun of you for enjoying them, which is fine. I like Deadpool. I've read a lot of Deadpool comics. Don't write in and tell me that they... (laughs) I love the guy, but... Guybrush is very different in how he breaks the fourth wall, and so are the rest of the characters who also have the ability to do it. It's not just him. In that... It's as though everyone is saying, this is a game and that means it's fun. And that and we're all participating in this fun thing together. And we're celebrating how fun and silly it is, as opposed to being mad at it or making fun of it for being unrealistic or something. It's just like, no, this is this is silly. And that's what's so great about it is that it, this is a video game. I don't know. It just really works. The 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 first game the first game uh and famously ends with Guy Rush and Elaine saying, Never pay more than twenty dollars for a computer mm-hmm, game. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, lots of this series has always broken the fourth wall in a very charming way. Um I want to talk about adventure games in 2022 because there aren't a lot of adventure games these days. There are a lot yeah. of games that this style of game. No, Not there are really. a lot of games that borrow mechanics and are called adventure games. Like you might see a walking simulator, which we've talked about uh, quite a bit in the past. But there aren't, and there are obviously puzzle games that come out these days. But there aren't a lot of games where you have an inventory full of objects and you have to use objects on other objects within the world and like hunt for things that you pick up in the world and have conversation trees. There aren't many games, if any, that are. This way, the last one I believe was Ron Gilbert's last game, Thimbleweed Park. Um, at least that I remember. Other than like, I should say, like I'm talking about kind of uh, things that are beyond like indie. Like there are indie game developers, adventure game developers, like um, Dave Gilbert, uh, not related, is uh, an indie adventure game designer who's constantly making up making games like this. But none of them are quite as like I don't know, big budget or, or quite as uh, uh, widespread, or wide known, widely known as mm-hmm. Return mm-hmm. of Monkey Island is. Um, and one Bit of the of things, thing. exactly. One of the things that I think it, it does that is really interesting is the way that it um, does a totally. It has a totally new interface for interacting with the world. In a lot of in previous Monkey Island games, at least the first two, you would select from like a verb menu on the bottom of your screen, and you would say, "Look at this, push this, pick up this," and it give you a lot of different options of things you could um, of like ways you could trigger dialogue potentially by like selecting the wrong things. Um, in this game, there aren't as many options, but in uh, but you get uh, the trade-off for that is that you get a, an easier interface to interact with, and you don't have to like slam your head against the wall trying to decide if the game wants you to play, like press push or pull or mm-hmm. twist or whatever. Um, so there's no verbs. Yeah, at all. what do you guys make it's just of clicking it? No, on stuff. You just click things. Yeah, yeah it's I, a really simplified, like way more interesting interface. I think. I really dig it. I think it's also a lot friendlier to people who've never played a game like this before, which it also feels like the game is trying to welcome those people in. I mean, by having the museum present at all, it's already telling you the stories of a lot of these characters. And, and the scrapbook, most, if you haven't yeah, seen the it, scrapbook, there's a scrapbook. Yeah, and I mean, there's the hint book that you get um, at one point from the, the voodoo lady, quote unquote. And it all helps you. But but I also just generally think the fact that you don't have to click on the verbs anymore is a nod to the way that times have changed while still keeping in some options. Like you can use either left or right click sometimes for different options and you still have dialogue options mm-hmm. that result in further scenarios. But also you can't ever really get that stuck. Like you can't lock yourself out of completing a puzzle, which is just a huge relief to me every time I play something like this. 
Yeah, which was always the case. That was like the whole LucasArts yeah, exactly. thing was they didn't lock you out. But yeah, well, so um, another one of the interesting things is so like you were saying, you you have the left click and the right click option for a lot of the things that you might highlight in the world with your mouse. But also it'll say it'll kind of like walk you through Guybrush's thought process as he's looking at each thing. So yeah. like you'll look at you'll look at like <laughs> right. uh, a chicken and it'll be like, oh, do I, I don't want to scare the chicken or something like mm-hmm. that. Or like it'll say instead of just saying like. Pre- poke chicken or interactive chicken it'll <laughs> yeah. actually talk like so so it winds up being like adding humor to that as well which i think mm-hmm. adds just a whole new level of of charm and and enjoy it like making the game enjoyable mm-hmm. you're really rewarded for clicking on every single thing you see like a mm-hmm. lot of the jokes are quite funny i mean obviously they get repetition if you click too many times you don't want to just click over and over but you pretty much want to click every single thing you see and it's that true. is so satisfying <laughs> Yeah, it works. I mean, it gives you verbs sometimes. I think appreciate is a funny one where you'll be carrying around like a, a clump of hair and it will uh-huh. say appreciate the clump of hair. Uh-huh. So it's kind uh-huh. of giving you verbs, but they're generated to be even funnier because they're specific to each thing. Right. And then, yeah, there's always it's the style of humor. I think I talked about it in our What's the Deal with Monkey Island, but it's very much um, a, a Gilbert Grossman kind of humor where you can continue to pester someone about something when they give you a no and they'll keep giving you new options so and the verb changes each time so it will be ask someone if they'll give you a, if they'll join your crew beg someone to join your crew like really beg someone to join your crew i think at one point there is ask someone to do this dare them double dog dare them triple yes. dog dare them and and you get new lines of dialogue each time the interface definitely makes the game easier i think that's a good thing personally how do you two feel about it yeah, well, I actually, so having completed the game, I actually still got stuck on a couple of puzzles, and at least one of them I had to use the hint book. So The um, hint book mm. in the game is fantastic. I've mm-hmm. used it plenty of times. I have no qualms about using it if I feel a little stuck. I'm not, I don't have time to wander around clicking on things. Same. But it's great because it gives you these tiered hints that are specific to every puzzle and each step you're in, and very, very helpful. And I also appreciate the quest log that tells you exactly what you're trying to do, which wasn't present in the earlier games. So I always know what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I actually, I, I've never felt like the the point of these games is to be super challenging, because when they are super challenging, it's usually because they're frustrating, and it's very rare to have <laughs> a, a challenge in an adventure game that ends with you, like once you finally figure it out or look it up or whatever, that ends with you feeling satisfied. Usually you're like, come on like how was I supposed to think of it? that's extremely true so yeah. in in a game like this I, I find that like it's better to skew on the side of too easy and I think that this I actually think this game has a perfect balance and it feels really good to me even if it does skew towards the easier side of things mm-hmm. um, the downside I actually think about the new interface um, this actually isn't really related to the new interface but it's just part of the way that this game works is that you can no longer just like try every object on every other object or try every object <laughs> on everything in the world which right. is something you could always do in the past and sometimes um, you would just get a generic guy brush response you would just be like oh I, I, I can't do that or whatever but other times there will be hilarious like specific uh, responses that doesn't quite happen as well there's an occasional occasionally you'll get a wrong thing response because Something seems like it should be doable, but it's not, and so you'll get a wrong thing response. But um, not quite as many options as there have been in previous adventure games. Right. To explain how it works to people a little bit is just that you'll select a thing from your inventory, and then you can just kind of cycle it through every possible thing in the screen you're looking at. And they'll mostly be kind of X'd out if you can't do anything. Exactly. And then occasionally it'll light up, and that's when you know you can use it. So it's uh, it gives you a little clearer feedback, I guess, which yeah makes it feel a little more limited in a way that's generally good, but... It does yeah it does remove some of that stuff you're talking yeah about. I don't have a problem with it and as you guys will see the game opens up and gets more elaborate I was actually worried when I when I was where you guys are I was like oh man so okay so we're getting on the ship and then we're going to Monkey Island and is that the whole game but no there are five acts in this game and when you get to act four act four I would say is the closest to like a real big like meaty Monkey Island experience it act oh, four boy. is essentially like if you guys remember or Kirk if you remember Maddie you wouldn't remember but in Monkey Island 2 essentially you start the the, the mm-hmm. first act of the game is on one island and then after that first act you gain the ability to sail between three different islands and all of the puzzles and quests in your whole adventure uh, requires you to be doing things in all three and like bringing things from one place to another and so on and so on 
that's what act four of this game is like. And it, it really opens up the world and there's a lot of cool stuff. And that act I really, really enjoyed. So you guys will find there's no shortage of like complexity and depth to this. It's not just like you're stuck in one place and, and you have to just use objects within that place. It goes deeper than that. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like this kind of puzzle design. I've been thinking about, as I play it, just the difference between this and most puzzle games that I play now, where it's just this fundamental difference between looking at a screen with a puzzle on it. I was listening back to our bonus episode when we were talking about <laughs> and the best <laughs> and those style of games where there's just a puzzle. Spoilers. We just said um, earlier we wouldn't spoil it. That's true. Well, people can people can go become members if they want to hear that. Can you wait? Can you can you bleep out? You got to bleep out those. Uh, no, <laughs> that makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. Bleep them out. <laughs> okay, I will. Those are bleeped out, so members know what I'm talking about. But um, anyways, we're talking about games with puzzles where you where you look at the um, at the pu- at the puzzle and it's a single thing. So you know you're looking at just there's like a I don't know a game board with weird pieces and there's holes missing from the game board and you have to figure out where to put the pieces and eventually you do and it unlocks something. You know, like the room is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of puzzle is really cool and it's just a puzzly puzzle. But this kind of puzzle is different, and I, I don't play that many games that do this specific thing where the puzzle is the world, and you have to move through it, and there are different elements of the world that become key points in different puzzles. And it allows for storytelling in the puzzle in a way that works really well, because what Guybrush is doing is going around, talking to people, having new conversations with them, finding objects that tell them things about the world, taking those back to other people, then those people talk about them. Like, it fits with the story really seamlessly. And I mean, this is the kind of thing they've been doing for 30 years. Like, this is what the first Monkey Island did. It's just playing it now and comparing it to other types of games. It's its own thing. It's a really distinct sort of frequency. And as it expands, I'm sure it gets even cooler. I can imagine I mean, what you're describing. If you're sailing around and going to all these different places, that's a really cool thing and actually kind of unusual. It's something that the game does really well. Mm-hmm. In the Double Fine Adventure documentary series, which I've raved about many, many times, it's one of yes. my favorite things ever. And I think everybody should go watch it ASAP, um, which is it's about the making of Broken Age, another point and click adventure, one that I less I liked a, a little bit less. I like the documentary series way more than the game. Um, but uh, uh, Tim Schafer, the head of Double Fine and, and lead director of that game, designer of that game, um, talks about how a good adventure game puzzle is a story and you have to, you can talk your way through, like describing exactly what you did sounds like a hilarious and interesting story. So, yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten that, but that totally makes so, sense. Which is like, which is, and if you, and if you're describing something and it doesn't sound interesting or hilarious, then it's probably not a good puzzle in an adventure game. And so if you think about every puzzle you've done, like the mop tree, for example, oh yes, I, right. I needed a mop. So I went to go get a stick from the legendary mop tree which i then <laughs> chopped down or like yeah. even even something a little simpler like oh well my buddy stan was in jail and or no my buddy otis is in jail and i wanted to get him out so uh i had to go to the key store but she needed a serial number which is inside the key so i had to steal a monocle from wally and right, use right, that right. to get when you yeah exactly when you talk through the exact like the order of operations it always sounds like a fun story and that's the key to a really great adventure game puzzle which i think is really insightful from Tip Schaefer. And if you compare that to, you know, a, a chessboard puzzle, the story there is just, well, there was this sliding right. tile thing and I looked at it for a long time and then I figured out, oh, it's supposed to be a picture of a, a horse. So right. I kind of rearranged it. <laughs> it was hard. And then I kind of exactly. almost got it, but I was stuck and then I figured it out and then it worked and a door opened. Like that's, you know, I did a bunch of Sudoku. I stared at some numbers and then uh-huh. I figured it out which numbers Yeah. Works. So much of it is also just an opportunity to tell jokes too. Like in a way, this feels like watching a TV show or a cartoon or something, but it's not super plot heavy. It's mostly just joke heavy. Like, yeah, there is a story that is very slowly unfolding before you, right. but it's also like, depending on how quickly you solve each puzzle, you get more jokes so you're almost rewarded for failing in a way that I really enjoy like if anything I feel like try all the options fail keep talking to people until you've exhausted everything is a part of the game that is the most fun because actually getting to the end of the puzzle normally would be the reward like normally you want to complete the horse tile and see the horse so you can just get to the next room and actually keep playing the game but in this game Mm -hmm. that's not really the game, as it were. Like, defeating each puzzle is not the game, at least not in my view. The game is 
hearing every voice line and, and giggling to myself because they're so good. The journey. The journey. <laughs> we should say the framing of this is that Guybrush is telling this story to his son. Yes. And you're really playing as his son at the beginning and then you're being told this story. Well, hold on. Let's back up even further. So, so that <laughs> we framing yeah. is based on the ending of Monkey Island 2. So Monkey Island 2 ends with this crazy, crazy like cliffhanger of sorts where uh, after chasing down, as Guybrush, after chasing down LeChuck you, through these tunnels uh, of like trying to figure out what Big Whoop is. Big Whoop is the name of the treasure that you're chasing in that mm-hmm. game. Uh, you wind up in this amusement park and suddenly LeChuck and and uh, and Guybrush are children and they're brothers uh, in, and they're like their parents come and, and bring them away and are like, come on guys. And, and then uh, uh, it cuts to Elaine and she's like, I hope Guybrush isn't under some horrible magical curse. But then we get to this and it's they're doing it's something totally different. Opening. It's a also, it's all a fake out. So first of all, turns out that the parents that uh, they kind of change the canon there because at the end of Monkey Island 2, it's your actual parents. Here it's like, we're pretending that they are parents. Um, <laughs> second of all, it's not a magical thing like Elaine had said at the end of Monkey Island 2. Instead, it's like, these are their Guybrush's kids like mm-hmm. running around an amusement park. So and he named that's one the of framing. them LeChuck slash Chucky. Yeah. Because yeah, why Le- not? <laughs> Charles, Chucky, yeah. So that framing sort of it's integral to this kind of story. And I think that this is a really interesting example of this kind of sequel, the Lego sequel that we're seeing more of, because those kinds of sequels, a sequel that has basically been created way, way after the most recent one, and they're bringing people back and they're a lot older and it's in some way going to be concerned with the legacy of this beloved, long-lasting series. And in this case, it's it's Monkey Island, and it's coming out way, way after the most recent one, at least, that these developers made. And it's, you know, like, like we've mentioned, Guybrush is older now, he comes to this island, and he's kind of, you know, he's a has-been. Like, his, his era on Melee Island, in the, just in the first act, is, like, completely over and there's all this new stuff that's happened there are these new young pirates who are in charge and they're really really impressive I think that joke is just a very funny one where he's talking to the new pirate lords and they're like listing their accomplishments and they're just wildly impressive in that way that even as someone in my early 40s I can sometimes learn about some 33 year old who's like oh yeah no big deal I did this and this and this and this and I'm like wow (laughs) (laughs) You did a lot more than I've done in my whole life. And I think that is just a, a relatable and funny feeling. And there's a lot of a lot of kind of jokes like that. And I think this game is doing a good job of commenting on its legacy and also celebrating it. And I just think it works really well. I've I've been thinking about what makes a good one of those versus a bad one. I would say to look at things we've talked about. The Matrix Resurrections is an example of a good one. I think that was also very concerned with its legacy and very meta, but it was interesting. We actually talked about that on a Beans cast. I think God of War 2018 is another good legacy sequel where it's really earnestly engaging with who Kratos is and what it means, especially as that game gets going and farther into it. It really, you know, it goes after it in a way that I thought was really cool. I recently tried to watch Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is a the opposite to me like that's one where they misunderstand the core of what made the original movie good and it's just like weren't proton packs cool yeah they were well what if some kids had them yeah the proton pack is so cool and it's not about like the ghostbusters and the characters really so anyways it's easy to go wrong with this kind of thing and it's really nice that this game really understands what made the original ones good and is having this sort of conversation with it and looking back on it and celebrating in a way. Like I just, I find that really like rich and and satisfying. Mm. Mm -hmm. Man. Yeah. It's uh, I'm excited for you guys to finish it so we can talk about the ending because you will not be shocked to hear that it explores some of those themes. Um, Um, Yeah. But there seems like it's going there. Maddie, to your point, I think that, that yes, even though the, the real appeal of this is seeing every line and, and just like exploring everything, every, every ounce of humor you can get out of this thing, there is a story and there is, Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of, it's an interesting one, this idea of like, well, we never revealed the secret of Monkey Island, so let's go figure 
figure out what that is. Hey, is Guybrush is on this chase uh, for the secret of Monkey Island. And I think it's really interesting in a lot of ways. I mean, the whole trail of destruction thing is like, it's very much about a guy who is like just fixated on this pursuit for no real reason. I mean, he could have a happy life. He has a wife who is like doing cool shit. Like she's often, you guys will see more of her a little bit later, but she's her, uh, um, you picked she's up on that. She's like trying to solve scurvy. She's working on a scurvy initiative. Yeah, she's working on a scurvy initiative. Um, and shit, which is like, like, well, a fun contrast to Guybrush, like on his selfish quest to like beat Guybrush, right. uh, to beat LeChuck, to, to finding the secret of Monkey Island. But it's, it's like very much about this guy who's like fixated on something and is not really a good person. It's really just causing a lot of havoc. And we tend to like rationalize his actions just cause we're controlling him and it's funny and we're trying to solve puzzles and stuff. But like within the fiction of the game and the story of the game, it's actually like, whoa, we're playing this like destructive, like abusive guy on his quest to like. <laughs> Uh, do something super selfish and for no reason. <laughs> and this is such a video game like a sequel thing, right? Mm-hmm. Max Payne 3 is totally about this. That game is about Max Payne as this guy who just kills tons of people and blows stuff up and it really questions whether that's a good thing. God of War is totally about that. I feel like even Uncharted 4 is kind of about that. Like It's almost an inevitable thing in these games that at some point if the series is going to turn its attention back to itself, it has to look at what the protagonist is doing and video game protagonists are just almost all agents of death and destruction. So you're going to wind up sort of critiquing the protagonist and looking at what he's doing. And it does seem like that's happening here. It's just that it's, it's very funny and doesn't feel frustrating in the way that some of those other games sometimes can mm-hmm. in this case, maybe just because of the type of game that it is. Well, yeah. cause it's hilarious the whole time. That's why yeah. that's why I, I think that's one of the main reasons why at least. Yeah, it's more like an Untitled Goose Game scenario where it's like, yeah, you are an agent of chaos, Uh but also that's part of what's so hilarious about what's occurring. Like, I mean, Guybrush just randomly breaking people out of jail, but then also he doesn't ever find out why they were there in the first place and that doesn't affect whether or not he's going to help them. Like, it's just, he's just kind of treating the world as his own personal playground and being like, well, what would happen if I did this next? (laughs) And that's, I don't know, it reminds me of how I felt when I was playing Goose Game, where it's like a lot of solving puzzles in that game is just, is not really thinking about yourself in, in the real world or as a person and instead just being like, well, what happens if I click this or go here? That would be annoying, but it might also be very funny. (laughs) It's very light on its feet, and it has, I mean, it's totally probably the opposite of Max Payne 3. I can't think of it. It's it's more totally different. It's funny to imagine, like, a God of War level, like, narrative about Guybrush being like, am I a bad father? Like, if that's how this game ends, Health music is, like, pumping in the background, and it's a monologue. (laughs) It's um I do want to say speaking of of actually Max Payne 3 has great music. We <laughs> talked about the art of this game and I do think the music is a huge part of it. They brought back Michael Land, Peter McConnell and uh Clint Bajakian. I, I think I'm saying his last name right. Those are three composers from the original game. And man, the music is perfect. I mean, it's not just each individual composition, though those are great. That opening track, which of course I love and have like covered on my own and, and know very well, when it plays over the opening title screen, I was just, of course, on cloud nine. But what they're doing is they've perfectly captured that LucasArts iMuse thing, which was very revolutionary, especially in Monkey Island 2, where you go to a new location and the music seamlessly switches. And it's the same music, but the instrumentation changes. And, you know, it goes to a different energy. So in it's in Wood Tick in mm-hmm. Monkey Island 2 is this famous, apparently very difficult to implement thing where each store that you go into has like a different instrument, a different, you know, a different sort of featured instrument on the theme. They're just capturing that feeling where you zoom out to the island and then you go to a new location and it zooms in and the music just seamlessly changes. And it it's it's like a it's musical, I guess. So it is there is an actual thing happening there in terms of the, you know, like aesthetically what's going on. But it almost feels bigger than that. It feels kind of abstract. Like there's just a, a vibe. It just kind of gives the game this vibe that keeps it again really, really just buoyant and light and helps all of the chaos and madness that's happening just feel like, yeah, well, whatever, though. Like, this is all just floating <laughs> along on a little cloud. It's mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, I wanted to talk about something involving the Lego sequel 
concept because I think this game is unique in that the creators of this game not only are like like looking back and reckoning with what they made they're also looking back at a couple of games that they didn't make and didn't have very much to do with at all which is kind of an interesting position to be in as the creator of something because oftentimes we hear these heartbreaking stories about like creators of of things losing what they created Um, but in this case I mean other than like um, Escape from Monkey Island is kind of a weak link but it's most Mostly good stuff. The series, um, in general, like the games that were made without Ron and Dave, are mostly good. There's no like um, people, just like money people, like milking the series for all it's worth or anything like that. It's a lot of just like earnest attempts to to do cool Monkey Island stuff. And so I think it's pretty cool that Ron Gilbert and Dave Grossman decided, rather than ignoring that stuff, they've kind of taken what they like about it and implemented a lot about what they like about it. For example, Murray, who is this hilarious, like Mm -hmm. talking skull character, um, was conceived for Monkey Island 3 like after Ron and Dave had left LucasArts um, and then also if you look in the scrapbook if you look at all of Monkey Island like the old adventures that Guybrush went on it includes all of them Escape uh, Cursed Escape and Tales so I think it's actually pretty cool even though Ron Gilbert has like kind of grumpily and infamously said in the past that uh, if he ever makes another Monkey Island game it will be his Monkey Island 3 it will ignore all the other stuff it'll be called Monkey Island 3 or whatever um, I think He's it's pretty cool over that. that yeah yeah it's cool that that he changed and i think it's it actually speaks to um just the way we all change and mature that like this is a game that addresses that stuff and and takes what works and is pretty cool with that legacy rather than just like pretending it didn't happen yeah and also yeah. all the voice actors are back and they're yes. not from and the, they the original not, yep. games and they're mm-hmm. so awesome like it's really cool God, to yeah. hear all Very of good. them doing their their characters again. I don't know. I'm obsessed with every single voice actor. Like especially yeah. the Guybrush one. What's his name? Dominic Arnetto? Something like yes. that. He's, He's perfect. So There's never so been more perfect. I don't even know how he does it. It, there's just something about his sprightly deadpan, which are two words I can't believe I'm saying next to each other. It's true, though. But it's how he delivers every line, and yep. there's no other main character quite like him, in part because of that voice and the cadence of it where you're just like Mm -hmm. what you're doing is a huge mistake that's going to mess things up for you and everyone around you but you sound so (laughs) thrilled to try it so i guess let's go and it's it's his voice Uh, feels good to be back on melee island the hub of pirating in the caribbean where every good expedition begins i'll see some old pals and get things rolling or sailing in this case hi I'm Guybrush Threepwood. Remember me? Haven't seen you in a while, Threepwood. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, freebooting mostly, swashing buckles and so on. But now I'm getting an expedition together to find the secret of Monkey Island. Oh, you're sailing with LeChuck. What? LeChuck's here in Mail? God, it's his vocal placement. It's like the way that he... It's where he puts his voice and the way that he makes it. It's the, it's so perfect for this exact character. And it, it really, yeah, it ties the whole thing together. I agree. He's mm-hmm. he's incredibly good. Everybody is good, but he is, like, amazing. He can also make me laugh at just times when Guy Rush is talking to himself. Like, there's mm-hmm. this moment where he's, like, looking at the fire and he's like, this is pretty cool, but it's going to get boring for you after a while or whatever. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I don't know why this is so funny, but it is. Right. It's just this guy. He's good at delivering. Delivering a line. He really is. Maddie, you've got to play Curse of Monkey Island. I do. I do. Fantastic in that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, cool. Well, Return to Monkey Island. I'm glad. I'm very glad that you guys like it as much as I do because I also love this game and I'm so glad it exists. And uh, it's just, man, it's just a, a little treasure. Just a little treasure. I'm just so glad Agreed. it exists. a good game. Um, and I hope, I hope Ron and Dave and that whole crew of talented people, because um, it's a group of people. I think it's like 20, 25 people. They're uh, also super talented in a uh, way. So it's not just Ron and Dave. But uh, yeah, I hope they make more uh, because it's it's great. And the ending certainly leaves room that they might keep keep exploring the series. And uh, it's hard to imagine a world without Monkey Island in it. And I hope they're proud of it. Like, I yeah. hope that the experience of that kind of weird backlash, that momentary backlash, didn't sour this just because I know that really bummed Ron out. I don't think it's it. I think they're proud of it. I, they I have should a feeling be. they're should proud be. of it. It's really, it's really special cool. and good. And the ending, well, you'll see. But after the ending, there's like a little. <laughs> what happens in this ending? I can't. <laughs> after the game ends, there's like a little special Easter egg that they put in uh-huh. the game. 
um, in the scrapbook. Like you look through the scrapbook and you'll find something that is like some something that was written by Ron Gilbert, and it's mm-hmm. really cool. And it's a and post credit sequence. Like, Nick Fury's right. there. Yeah, yes, Nick Fury shows up. But no, <laughs> cool. it's really cool, and it it makes you realize like, wow, these guys are like it just proud says, of- fuck the haters and fifteen <laughs> yeah and big neon letters. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Let's take a break, and we will be back with one more thing. Hello, dreamers. This is Evelyn Denton, CEO of the only world-class, fully immersive theme resort, Steeplechase. You know, I've been seeing more and more reports on the blogs that our beloved park simply isn't safe anymore. Murdered them? I'm gonna wreck it. They say they got mugged by brigands in the fantasy kingdom of Ephemera, or hijacked by space pirates in Infinitum. I mean, I could have a knife. My papa said that I needed to do a crime. Friends, I'm here to reassure you that it's all part of the show. These criminals were really just overzealous staff trying to make things a little more magical for our guests. We're just as safe as we've always been. This isn't a county fair, dreamers. This is Steeplechase. The Adventure Zone. Every Thursday at MaximumFun.org. Since the dawn of time, man has dreamed of bringing life back from the dead. From Orpheus and Eurydice to Frankenstein's monster, resurrection has long been merely the stuff of myth, fiction, and fairy tale. Until now. Actually, we still can't bring people back from the dead. That would be crazy, but the Dead Pilot Society podcast has found a way to resurrect great dead comedy pilots from Hollywood's finest writers. Every month, Dead Pilot Society brings you a reading of a comedy pilot that was sold and developed but never produced, performed by the funniest actors from film and television. How does Dead Pilot Society achieve this miracle? The answer can only be found at MaximumFun.org. And we are back. Let's do one more thing. Maddie, start us off. Sure. So I, I'm only playing good video games all week this week. So I, I did oh, return to good, Monkey Island and I decided to, to play a different really good video game. Dante's Inferno 2. Before, <laughs> and it's called Dante's Inferno 2. Two Inferno, two ice over. I don't know. There is an ice level in Dante's Inferno. I think I talked about that when I talked about Dante's Inferno, but it's crazy that there's an ice level. And there's an ice level right. in the original poem. But I played Stay a different target. game. Stay on target. Which is called Bayonetta from 2009, which is roughly a trillion years ago in video game years. Yeah, and the well, world was not ready for Bayonetta when it came out. People no. were so freaked out. People didn't know what to do. And honestly, they didn't know what to do, I think, until Leah Alexander wrote a blog post on her old blog, Sexy Video Game Land, where she was like, this is just a game about a cool dominatrix lady, and it's kind of fun to pretend to be a dominatrix in a video game. And then everybody was like, oh, wait, is it? Is that cool? Should we just do that? And now it's 2022, and we live in a world where everybody says, step on me, mommy, in response to, like, every time Widowmaker has a new skin or, like, you know, anytime any character's doing anything, uh-huh. like Lady Dimitrescu. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. This is, like, a, a, a entire world of big lady powerful video game mommies that are, that are stepping on you, the player. And, like, <laughs> Bayonetta did it first. Bayonetta also, quite frankly, did it best. And replaying this game... I was like, is this going to hold up? Like, have I been telling myself all this time that that game was really cool and like, I'm going to replay it and I'm going to be disappointed? Not at all. If anything, I'm like, this game didn't get enough credit when it came out. It's so funny. It's so joyous and exuberant in its portrayal of like a cool dominatrix lady. And it is just so unabashedly like... Not just sexual, but also just like <laughs> having fun with the ideas of the char- the main character being like a bad girl, like a villainess ordinarily. In another video game, she would be the villain that you fight. And in Bayonetta, you are a witch who's fighting against angels and God. You're fighting God, Jason. You should like that part. <laughs> and like Sounds all the like angels... You're basically fighting the Catholic Church in this game because you're like a cool lady who's like, I think sex is fun and cool and I'm going to fight the Catholic Church. Like, that's like essentially (laughs) what you're doing. And it it freaking rules. And I just I just truly feel like people weren't ready for it. I I mainly replayed it because I want to replay Bayonetta 2 next week because I'm prepping for Bayonetta 3 because I'm so pumped. But also I'm a little worried about Bayonetta 3 because I'm like, it's been like 10 years since Bayonetta 2 came out. I don't know if people even know what happened in the first two games or if the third game is even going to try to explain it because it's actually like a fairly complicated like 
sort of pseudo-religious mysticism plot lines with like time yeah. travel and stuff. And like, you don't have to know what's going on, but it's kind of fun to know what's going on. But I think most people probably won't. But also I feel like this is the time. Like this is this is Bayonetta's time. She should be a reigning champion returning to gamers and saying, finally, it's okay to say step on me, mommy. And she should be like, <laughs> damn straight. And I will punish all of you. Like, I just... I want her to succeed and I want the game to be good, but I'm also like, and maybe it's too late for her. So anyway, those are, those are my thoughts. Does she ever actually say step on me? Or, or no, people say <laughs> no, step on me to people her. people basically do. There's like a guy, right. Luca, who's obsessed with her for the whole game and it's never consummated. I mean, he's sort of like, I think mm-hmm. the, the, the player character stand in where he's like the sub who's like constantly following her around being right. like, he you're so Bayonetta. cool. Yeah, he simps Bayonetta. But like before people were saying simping all the time. Um, yeah. And she just kind of makes fun of him. I mean, Bayonetta is like sort of coded as a queer character. Like Kimmy has mm-hmm. tweeted about how Bayonetta and John are the couple, the two lady witches in the game. He's like maybe jokingly said they're a couple, but like, maybe not like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm choose to believe that they're dating and I don't know. So anyway, that's another layer. She's also maybe gay. I don't know. These games are awesome. I think people should play. So them. they <laughs> should, ca- they should call it gay in it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> show the world. <laughs> yeah. That'd show them. Nintendo would love that. Cut to next week when I have to apologize for making that comment. Just like the no, jumping in the big don't. thing. Everyone um, supports it. It's perfect. Kirk, you're up. Kirk, what's your one more thing? Um, man, now I want to talk about Bayonetta. Um, <laughs> my, my one more thing is a movie that I watched with Emily's folks over the weekend called The Big Chill from 1983, which I had never seen. And is kind of a, you know, one of those, I don't know, put it in the, in the hall. It's in the Pantheon uh, movies, but I just had never seen it. Have either of you seen The Big Chill? No, it's like a nope. Gen Xers hanging out movie, right? <laughs> it's actually a boomers hanging oh, out movie. Oh, right. But yes. I, okay. Um, so this movie is written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan, who you mm. may recognize from one of the screenwriters from The Force Awakens. One of the reasons that movie is very funny. Also wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's actually a little Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, Easter egg in in the Big Chill, and it was co-written with Barbara Benedict, who's another screenwriter. Didn't he also write Empire Strikes Back? I'm surprised you mentioned Force Awakens. When you oh, well, that was it. most recently. Yes, he wrote. I think did he write yeah, Just I Empire? He, I think he wrote Empire. Yeah, I think he was with that. That's why Empire is considered the best one. A lot of people think that. And he I think was that's like, why they brought him back for Force Awakens. Yeah. Well, and Empire was also directed by someone else whose name I'm forgetting, but it was not directed by George Lucas. Mm-hmm. Mm. Bing. Empire Strikes Back was directed by Irvin Kirshner, and the screenplay was by Lawrence Castan and also Lee Brackett. Bing! Anyways, yes, Lawrence Castan, like a, a really happening screenwriter in the 80s, and also a director, which I didn't know, and I didn't know he directed this film. This is a really interesting movie, and I do recommend watching it. It is a kind of one of those generational Rosetta Stone movies that I think was really important to people who were maybe around our age in their mid to late 30s, early 40s, back in the early 80s, which is a very different time uh. to be that old. And also that is like the baby boomer generation. This It's a movie about a group of people who come together because one of their friends dies by suicide. And he's never shown, apparently Kevin Costner provided the body and then was never cast in the movie or like shown and then didn't give a credit. So it's this uncredited performance at the very beginning. You just see like his hands, a couple of other things. So they all come together for the funeral. And then in the aftermath, they all kind of are reconnecting. So it's a group of people who you learn over the course of the movie. It's like 15 years after college and in college, which would have been in the late sixties during the civil rights movement and the Vietnam war protests, they were big activists, a lot of them. And now they're at this sort of southern home of one of the characters played by Kevin Klein, And they wind up spending the weekend at this house. And the whole movie is just conversations between different combinations of these people in this house over the course of a weekend as they all kind of find out who they are. And through context, you learn who they used to be. And they explore their relationships. Um, it's got a great cast. It's like uh, Jeff Goldblum is in it playing this creepy dude. It's young Jeff Goldblum. He's great. Glenn Close is in it. She's got a couple great scenes. Kevin Klein, like I said, Tom Berenger. Back when it was, I think people were pretty sure Tom Berenger was going to be the biggest star ever, and he kind of never got there, but he's he's in it as well. William Hurt, who's a hey, it's that guy that you've seen in a million things, is in it. So it's a great cast, a lot of other people as well. 
And it's just such an interesting movie. I, I was trying to find like essays about this movie or things that I could read about it because I was having all these thoughts, especially the music. This, this movie has an amazing and famous soundtrack that's almost entirely black music from the 1960s. So it's like killer Aretha Franklin, like Temptations, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, all of this soul music where the cast is entirely white characters. And they're talking about basically how they all kind of sold out and joined the bourgeois of like, you know, they're all wealthy or they're all doing pretty well or famous or making money. And they kind of abandoned the principles that they were protesting for in the 60s. And the whole story is, it's kind of reflected in the contrast between this music from their youth when they believed in something, when they were fighting for something, and the reality of their present day life, where it's this kind of disappointing, compromised adult reality. And I think there's something really interesting there that maybe wasn't even intentional or maybe was. And I haven't been able to find the essay that I think would tie that all together in a way that I certainly am not prepared to do. Anyways, I thought it was like a really interesting movie. I thought it was, uh, it's well made and fun to watch and also just raised a lot of questions and had me having a lot of interesting conversations after it. So I recommend watching it if you're feeling like, you know, something a little bit different. So that's The Big Chill. And it's streaming various places. It's from 1983. It's very easy to find. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right. I will close this off. My one more thing is a book called Fairy Tale by this little lone author, this <laughs> little guy, this guy you might have heard of, called Stephen King. Uh, this is Stephen King's latest book. I've been reading through it. It is fascinating. Uh, as you might expect from a Stephen King book, it's very good. Um, I have a couple of thoughts that I'd like to share with you guys. So the concept of this book is um, the main character is this boy uh, who named Charlie who um, winds up through a series of events, winds up taking care of this old man. And this old man has this big secret, which is like a portal to another world that is like a fairy tale world. And Charlie goes down that rabbit hole and, and discovers all sorts of crazy stuff. But um, before he even winds up in the fairy tale world, the first 200 pages are just like classic King in that it's the most gripping yet mundane story you will ever <laughs> stop. So yeah. my favorite part of, of Stephen King books is always when he's just writing human life and nothing is really happening or maybe a couple of things are happening, but it's just like capturing like the most like day to day yes. activities and just like days and days of things like, oh, and today, like I went to the store and, and this thing happened and, and then I bought a bought a nice piece of cheese and he's just so good at, cre at capturing that. Um to the point where, like, when that changed and when Charlie actually wound up in the fairy tale land, I actually, like, started losing steam with my reading because I was so enjoying the, like, mundane stuff beforehand. That's so funny. It made me think of, like, like um, the JFK book, uh, what is it, 11... 11-22-63. My favorite part of that book is when uh, the lead character is just, like, stuck in the 50s or the 60s for, like, four years and it's just, like, pages and pages of just, like, his, his life back then and, like, falling in love with the girl and just like that whole sequence um, because Stephen King is just the master and, and it's just like like he's unparalleled at writing those slice of life stories and it's so funny that he's known as like this tremendous horror author which obviously he is and, and he's called the master because he can thrill and scare people but really his skill is just like creating characters and human stories that are just like uh, so enthralling that you just can't let go away um, so yeah, man, Stephen King is, is, is so good. Um, also he does, as always, he does that thing where he's like, uh, just writing hundreds and hundreds of pages of just like nothing happening. And then like, <laughs> and we'll end a chapter with, and then we all died, but that happened later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, There's a lot of that. It was the last time like, he would. Yeah. And he would never see her again. Yes. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> a classic King thing. Yeah, like, wait, what? Where he's just like ruining his own story. And sometimes that gets on my nerves because I'm like, man, I would have liked to see that, like to know about that when it happens. But other times it works well because he's just like like setting up like good foreshadowing. But mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's so funny that like uh, I find myself just so enraptured by his boring stuff that I don't even want to get to like the monsters and fairies and stuff. <laughs> I just want to read about this guy like doing chores for this old man. It's it's just so good. 
I've been, um, I actually spent most of my trip reading the Tommyknockers, which they just covered on our Maddie and my favorite Stephen King podcast, Just King Things. Yeah. And I haven't listened to the episode. That's, it's that good. Is, I'm, I'm, I'm like halfway through the episode and I'm like, should I stop listening to this and read the Tommyknockers? The book is cool and it's <laughs> doing that thing that he does that's similar where he, he builds out a whole town, which he also did in Salem's Lot, which I recently read, Needful mm-hmm. Things, Under the Dome. He, Under he's the dome. done it many, yes. many times. It, of course, and um, where he just zooms out and shows a lot of people. Tommy Knuckers is a good book. Um, I'm, I'm digging it as well. That's, but what that is that's what I hear. I hear it's similar a good book. <laughs> the, like that, like the mundanity, the day to day life. It's also what's great about Cujo is it's just this story about people, really. I mean, there is a rabid dog and it gets <laughs> scary. But most of the story is just like these two families and stuff that happens to them in their lives. And yeah, it's it, he can be so gripping about that kind of stuff that it really gets exciting when the shit hits the fan. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fairy tale. It's so I'm, I'm only like probably a third of the way through just cause I can, like I said, I kind of lost steam when that stuff stopped, <laughs> when it started becoming more of a fairy tale. Stuff. But yes, it's really good so far. Um, I'm really enjoying yeah, it. I'm excited. I have a, I have a hold on it at the library, so I'll get it in like a yeah, year. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll, I'm sure there's so many copies. I, I you'll, yeah. you'll enjoy it while you're waiting. You should read Billy Summers, his book from last year or two years ago. Cause that was also yeah, really, man. really good. Um, Stephen King has really just not lost a step. He is still, he's in his seventies. He's still like cranking out these incredible. It's imp- very impressive. It's how, pretty wild. How he keeps it up. Uh, yeah. Just unlike, and unlike all these other famous authors who use ghostwriters and just like stamp their names on things, he is actually writing the stuff. So yeah, just incredible. Yeah, he does the work. Um, that is it for this week's episode. Kirk, Maddie, I will see you guys on a pirate adventure next week. <laughs> All right. See you next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.